guys hear me? Coming through? Perfect. Cool. All right, so you have for me for a second week <laughs> in a row. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. Um, but we're in our second week of the book of Acts, um, and last week we talked about the first half of Acts chapter 1, which taught us about what the kingdom of God is like. We saw that the kingdom of God is the church submerged in the spirit, the kingdom of God is the church throughout the world, and the kingdom of God is the church on the move. And in order for this kingdom to grow throughout the world, Jesus told his disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the spirit. Now, spoiler alert, Acts chapter 2 is all about what happens when the promise is fulfilled and the Spirit comes to dwell in believers. And, but that means that the rest of chapter 1, we're in this kind of limbo zone. We're in this period of waiting. And Luke gives us a glimpse into what exactly happened during this time. And so today we're going to see what happened, and it will give us wisdom for what are we to do when we as the modern-day church also enter seasons of waiting and seasons of lament. So let's read what Luke has to teach us today. We're going to reread a bit of, yeah, Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 13. It says, When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. They all were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So here we have all the disciples have gathered together, and Luke is pretty quick to emphasize that the women who followed Jesus were there too, right? And so that was one of the themes that we talked about last week that Luke brings out, is he emphasizes and highlights women in his gospel and in the book of Acts. Um, and specifically, Luke here highlights Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, just as he also actually did this, he highlighted Mary at the beginning of Luke, his gospel. And so now here, he's also highlighting her again. Um, and can we just maybe just spend a quick moment just to talk about Mary? I know I feel like we as the Protestant church, it's really only around Christmas time that we talk about Mary. And, uh, and other than that, we tend to usually avoid conversations about her. But I do feel that this is to our detriment because Mary was an incredible person. And while she gets little airtime in the other Gospels, like I've been saying, Luke gives very special attention to her in his writing. And you can sense that he knows just what a faithful and strong person she is. You see, up until now in the story, Mary has kept faith in the truth of her son all these years. She's watched him grow. She's watched him teach. She's watched him feed the hungry, watched him be slandered by the very temple that she worshipped at. And then she watched him die. And as a prophet named Simon told her at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he said, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Mary has known this sword. She has watched her son breathe his last and seen the light fade from his eyes. She has known the pain of loss, and she has also known great faith. And she stayed true to God in spite of experiencing, um, in spite of all of this and, and the suffering that her son experienced. Now we get the account that Jesus appeared to his disciples in a locked room after he was raised from the dead. And I don't know if Mary was in that room <clears throat> on that day, but I can imagine that Jesus wouldn't have not appeared to her. Um, if not there, then somewhere else. Perhaps she is at home 
doing some task, minding her own business, when all of a sudden, this son of hers, who was dead, appears and is alive. She thought she had lost him, but now he is found. And I'm sure she wept, embraced him, and then sat him down and made him his favorite food. <clears throat> but now, 40 days have passed. The plates are in the sink, the table has been cleared, and her son is gone yet again. And even though she knows he is alive, I'm sure the ache of the loss has returned. And so what does she and her other children do? Well, Acts chapter 1 tells us that they gather with the church and they pray. And so my first point here is that in seasons of lament and seasons of waiting, we gather to pray. And everyone in that room has lost a loved teacher, some have lost a brother, and Mary has lost her son. And while, yes, he's risen from the dead and is alive, that doesn't change the fact that he's still gone. Yes, he's in heaven, but that means that he's not here, and that still hurts. He has told his followers to wait for his spirit to fall. But as with any time of waiting, it's easy to get lost in your thoughts. And to add to this, not only is Jesus gone, but Luke has also tipped us off to another loss already. By listing the names of the disciples, two facts are glaring. One is that there's only 11 names, and two is that Judas Iscariot is not one of them. So while everyone is wrestling with the loss of Jesus, the one whom they followed the last three years, they are also wrestling with the loss of one of their fellow disciples. Just imagine yourself as one of the disciples. These are the people that you've walked with from town to town. You spent countless nights sleeping under the stars with them, You've swapped stories and jokes with them by many campfires. And now not only is Jesus your teacher absent, but so is Judas, the person that you thought was your friend. You were close to Jesus, but there was still a sense where he was the leader. But with Judas, it was different. He was on your level, right? He was one of you. And so you feel both the pain of his absence and also the pain of his betrayal. Betrayal in both his delivering your Lord to be killed and also in his choice to end his own life. You're angry, you're hurt, and you're confused. You know that he could have chosen to come back. He could have come to you, but you also fear that you would have sent him away with sharp words. Maybe if you had said something earlier, maybe if you had followed him out during Passover night, but now he's gone, and you're feeling not just the absence of Jesus, your savior, but also of the absence of Judas, your betrayer, your enemy, but also your friend. And so during this time of waiting and lament, the early church decides to come together to seek God in prayer, to take their pain and their anxious thoughts and bring them to God. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. So let's keep reading. Verse 15, it says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and the sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120 and said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that in their language, that field is called Keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and about among us, beginning from the baptism of John 
Until the day he was taken up from us, from among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so Peter, being Peter, always the quickest to speak up among the 12 disciples, he continues to show leadership in the book of Acts as he stands out among the people. And not just among the 12, but the whole crowd of 120 people who are close followers of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I thought about when Jesus rose from the dead, I only thought that there was like about 12 people, you know, who like hung out with him then. But this is 120 people. I had a massive understatement of what, who, who was all there. And here we see that's 10 times that amount of people. And so out of these 120 people, Jesus had taken a 10th for himself as an inner circle, the 12 disciples. And so Peter speaks up in front of all these 120 people and finally talks about the elephant in the room, which is Judas. And it is clear that Peter has been spending this season of waiting and lament by reading through the scriptures, particularly the Psalms, because he demonstrates how King David's poems of being the suffered, suffering anointed king point forward toward the sufferings of Jesus. Peter sees Jesus in the words of anguish in the Psalms, but more than this, he also sees the enemies who mock and malign King David as pointing forward to the betrayal of Judas. And Peter specifically quotes from two Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And while we're not going to go back and read through them, uh, this week I did go through them and just noted the places where they overlap. So both Psalms are of David. They both recount a time when he was overwhelmed by enemies who hated him and crying out to God for rescue. His enemies slander him, even though he's innocent. David then calls down curses on his enemies while also pleading with God for salvation for himself. Each psalm closes with David promising to praise God. And so it's from those sections of curses that Peter quotes from. But what is interesting is that he's not quoting the psalms to curse Judas. Rather, after a time of prayer and reading and focusing on the psalms, Peter realizes that Judas has already fulfilled the pattern found in these psalms. He's betrayed God's innocent one, and the field that he purchased has been defiled by his own blood being spilled on it. In Jewish culture, blood being spilled and anything to do with blood or death was, was uh, a defilement. It made what was clean unclean. And so that land now is no longer desired by the Jewish people. His camp his dwelling, the land that Judas owns, has become desolate. No one wants to live in it. And by seeing this present-day reality in light of Psalm 69, Peter then sees Psalm 109, where the petition of David is that someone take the place of his accuser. Peter sees this as providing direction for what they are to do. Again, this is not Peter seeking to curse Judas, but him seeking guidance from the Scripture. They are in a season of waiting for God's spirit, and so they wait, they pray, and they read the scriptures. And this is where, in seasons of lament and seasons of waiting, we are to read the scriptures for wisdom. Peter's words were soaked in love and respect for the scriptures. The Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament that we normally avoid, he is desperate to find guidance on what they should do. Peter feels the scriptures are leading him to choose someone to step into the 12th space of the apostles, to fill in the gap. And so is Peter right? Has he read scripture correctly? And the book of Acts doesn't actually tell us that. 
And what is odd is that Matthias, the one who ends up being chosen, is never mentioned again in the New Testament. And later in Acts chapter 12, when James, one of the 12, is killed, there is no record of a follow-up meeting to replace him. This might lead us to think that Peter was wrong. The reselection of a 12th apostle wasn't important. But at the same time, Luke still felt that this story was important enough to record here. It was worth passing down, and so maybe Peter was right. It's ambiguous. And while in the 21st century we don't like ambiguity, um, I think some of us did not like the end to inception, um, and we, we enjoy having concrete, what's the ending, what should, what, what, what's happened? Um, but it's in the lack of detail that we, the hearers of the story, are invited in. And I think regardless of whether Peter interprets scripture correctly, the point of this story for us today is not to choose our new church leaders by reading sections of the imprecatory psalms. Um, it's not asking us to emulate that, but it is asking us to emulate Peter's passion and love for the Bible, namely the Old Testament, and his passion for seeking God's direction. In a time of confusion and loss, Peter turns to the scriptures and finds hope and restoration in them. Like King Solomon, he seeks not for riches or power, but for wisdom, and that is something to be admired. And so let's look to verse 23, the last section here. So they proposed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who's also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, you, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So here we have two men put forward who meet the criteria that Peter suggests. These men have been around since Jesus was baptized, all the way to the day that the cloud took him away, to God's throne room. And all the Gospels start with Jesus' ministry by mentioning the baptism that he went through, the point at which he was anointed by God's Spirit. And so these men have been there the entire span of Jesus' ministry, and that is why they've been chosen. But now the choice needs to be made as to which two will have that 12th spot in the apostleship. And how they make that next choice is interesting. It's not through a three-hour meeting in a stuffy room. It's not by giving them each a spiritual gift test to see who gets the higher score. Um, no, they cast lots. And so let's just talk about lots for a moment. Um, while I think it's easy to just assume that throwing lots is more of an ancient way of, say, of throwing dice with names on them, that actually slightly misses the point of what the lot was. When we look at scripture and when we look at how the ancient word, uh, world used lots, we see that the lot was an object used to determine someone's share. It's where we get the word allotment from. It's also where we get the word lot, like you buy a, that you buy a house to build on. Um, it's not just about rolling dice. The lot was a representation of not just a person's name, but a person's share in a matter. And in the Old Testament, there's a number of moments where lots were rolled. And I actually just want to highlight two of them, two of them kind of in the middle there. The first is that the 12 tribes of Israel were given a share of the promised land by throwing lots. And the second is that when the temple priesthood was, uh, was um, established by King David, he had lots cast to divide up the duties of the priesthood. And in fact, we see this priestly practice happen in one of the Gospels. And what do you know? It's the Gospel of Luke. And even more interesting, it's 
Just like how in the book of Acts, the very opening chapter is where lots were cast, the very opening chapter of Luke is where lots are cast. So in the Gospel of Luke, there's a, man, a priest named Zechariah, and Luke writes, when his division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God, and it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. So here we have lots being cast to determine that Zechariah was the one chosen for the ministry of going into the holy place and burning incense. And have you ever wondered why there's 12 disciples? Why, is there significance of that number? You know, what's, what's the point? Why did he just choose 12? And we saw there was 120 people by the end. Why 12? And 12 is how many tribes there are in Israel. And so in Jesus choosing 12 tribes, Jesus is indicating that these are the men who are representing Israel as a whole. They are representing the 12 sons, um, the original 12 sons of Israel. And as they are ministering with Jesus, they are representing Israel to him. Just like how the priests in Israel represented not just God to the people, but the people to God. And so the, the disciples are representing Israel in their number, and in doing so, they're reflecting that duty of the priesthood. And so while the promised land was divided by lots among the 12 tribes of Israel, and the duties of the priesthood were assigned by lots, now the disciples are casting lots to see who has the 12th share in the leadership of the priestly ministry that Jesus created. And so while rolling dice to see who will be one of the major heads of the church might seem like an odd thing for us to do today, for the disciples it was, who are steeped in the scriptures, Casting lots was a holy and good practice. And the important thing is they're not just casting lots, right? It says uh, that they prayed first and then cast lots. And that's important. What we see here in Acts is a merging of both the new reality of a church, united, committed to prayer, mixed with the old tradition of seeking God's will through lots. And as the book of Proverbs says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, from Yahweh. And casting lots and quarrels and, se and separates powerful opponents. So the disciples know that casting lots not only helps them to avoid quarreling, but done correctly is an invitation to let God have his way. This isn't about manipulating God, twisting his arm so that he can give us what we want, but rather it's a way of seeking out God and giving him full control of the situation. And so this leads me to my final point. In seasons of lament and seasons of waiting, we seek God's way and not our own. And so Joseph, one of the two men put forward, had everything going for him. From birth, it seemed that he should have been the one added to the disciples because the name Joseph literally means, let him add. And he was a truly desirable pick because his last name, Barsabbas, literally means son of desire. And I'm sure that he would have done many just deeds while in leadership because his other name, Justice, literally means just. So, but with the story of King David's anointing among his brothers, just like that, sometimes what might appear to be the best choice isn't always, which is why the disciples started by praying, you, Lord, know the, everyone's hearts, right? God can discern, he can see into the heart. And so instead of Joseph, son of desire, Joseph the just, being chosen, the lot falls to Matthias. The name Matthias means gift from God. And while he may not have all the names of Joseph, 
We don't hear, and we don't hear from Matthias for the rest of the New Testament, like I said before. I can't help but think that he was a blessing to those around him. And as I mentioned earlier, in Peter's speech, he could have quoted a lot more than those two psalms, um, the, uh, from those two psalms. And Because I've read them both, and there are some pretty dark lines that David says about his enemies. But rather than using the two psalms to ream out Judas and call down curses upon him, Peter instead uses it to prove that just as Judas fulfilled scripture in the way that he died, so too must the church fulfill scripture by, sending, by finding someone to fill the gap in the ministry that Judas left. Judas chose his path, and so the church must find a way to honor that special position that he was given. It's not about replacing Judas to get back at him. It's about appointing someone to step into the honorable role that he was given. It's about elevating Judas' role, not desecrating it. It's not about judgment. This is about redemption. God takes a broken, ugly, tragic situation filled with pain and lament and brings new life into it. In this season, the church has come together to pray, read scripture, and give God the control and the decision. Matthias is living up to his name. Through his election, the church has been united and gathered together, ready for Pentecost. Matthias is truly a gift from God, and he's a gift to us. He is a gift of grace. And so what does this mean for us today? Well, if during seasons of lament and seasons of waiting, we are to gather and pray, what are things that are preventing us from praying? What are things that God might want us to pray about? Who might God be wanting you to reach out to this week to let them know that you're praying for them? And then actually pray for them and don't forget. (laughs) And if during seasons of lament and seasons of waiting, we are to read scripture for wisdom, what makes it difficult to read scripture? Is there anything that uh, anyone who I know who would be willing to read through a portion of scripture with me? Is there a translation maybe that I find easier to read? And then maybe if during seasons of lament and seasons of waiting we are to seek God's way and not our own, some questions that we can ask are, what are things in my life that I want to control? And how can I give God control even in just a small way? And then maybe who can I talk to to pray about this for me? And so as we go into this week, those are some questions that we can maybe think about, but... In the meantime, we've all gathered, we've united together, and so let's just pray for a moment. Dear God, we thank you that you are a God who sees our pain, you see our loss, and you see those seasons of waiting. Um, And God, we can sometimes feel that we as a church have, you know, we've been in a season of waiting. But God, we know that you are going to be doing incredible things through us, through this Church of Northsight. And so God, we continue to gather each week. We continue to gather to pray to seek your will, to look at the scriptures. And God, we ask that your spirit might move in us in this week, in this month, and in the rest of the lifespan of our church, God. Um, Continue to gather us, continue to grow us, but God, ultimately, continue to have your way. May you be honored and may you have the control in these situations. In your name, amen.